Thank you for joining us for Reclaiming the Lost Souls, a limited podcast series brought to you by the Lost Souls Public Memorial Project and the East Brunswick Public Library. I am your host, Melissa Hosek. In this episode, we speak with two of the founding members of the Lost Souls Public Memorial Project as they look back to its beginnings and their hopes for the future. We also share more teen essays from our contest. If you haven't listened to our past episodes, please do. This journey is complex and having the context is important. Just scroll back in your feed or click the link in our show notes. Now, enjoy the show. I am joined by Mavonia Caldwell and Peter Kahn, trustees of the Lost Souls Public Memorial Project. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us, Melissa. Good to be with you. Previously in episode one, we learned how both of you helped form this project after trying to have Van Wickle Road's name changed. Where did you learn about this story of forced slavery in East Brunswick and what inspired you to help create this project and bring awareness? Peter, how did you hear about it? People at the Unitarian Society heard about it while I was overseas in the summer of 2017. So when I came back, there were a few people, the the minister and one or two others, um, who were aware of it. They told me, and the decision was made to appeal to the town council to rename Van Wickle Road. But I realized that in 1818, when the ring was discovered, there was outrage and stories in the newspapers of the time. But soon thereafter, the whole thing was forgotten. So I thought, what would happen if we were to win and the township renamed the road? It might again be forgotten, just as it was 200 years ago. So the idea occurred to build a permanent physical memorial. And I wrote a one-pager for the back of the piece of paper that we submitted to the town council for the petition to rename the road, outlining the idea of having a memorial. And that led to the Lost Souls Project. And I really heard about Van Wickle and the slavery ring a few years ago. We had a son who was in school here, but it was not taught as part of New Jersey history. And when we found out that there was this slave ring, we became interested, but it really never went anywhere until we came up with the idea that Peter's already mentioned. We just stewed about it and were concerned about it and particularly concerned that Van Wickle was never prosecuted or in any way had to lose any of his wealth or his position. Behind it for me was the fact that I had just come home from a visit to Germany. We have friends there. And we visited both Berlin and Frankfurt. And in Berlin, of course, I saw the Holocaust Memorial and several other memorials which are quite striking. The German government has done a good job of trying to make sure people don't forget that. But in Frankfurt, a friend of ours helped us find the gravestones of a cousin of my grandfather by the name of Karl Kahn. Karl served in World War I in the German army and won the Iron Cross, which is the German equivalent of the Medal of Honor. He became a physician and a very well-known figure in Frankfurt deeply involved in civic affairs for a long, long time. When the Nazis took over, they revoked his license to practice medicine on anybody other than a Jew. I'm of Jewish ancestry. And after a while, they revoked his license to practice on anybody, and they took his house. 
making him accept a lower price than the buyer was willing to pay. Sometime thereafter, they sent him and his wife a letter telling him the date on which they would be deported. By this time, they knew what the deportation meant. And so instead of letting the Nazis kill them, they committed suicide with what was then called prussic acid, now cyanide. We visited their gravestones in the Frankfurt Cemetery and their unusual rectangular blocks of blue and white marble with the usual dates of birth and death on it. And Carl's wife, Jenny, coincidentally, the same name as my wife, on the bottom of these gravestones in Hebrew is engraved, they liberated themselves in death. Those gravestones are reserved for people who committed suicide that way. And they're scattered, sprinkled all over the cemetery. That brought me home and I, when I came home with that in my head. Yeah. And remembrance is a duty of those of us who remain. Unfortunately, unless we bring out true history, then remembrance does not occur. Because even in some of the township papers, Van Wickle is mentioned along with James Morgan. They are just listed as good citizens, good businessmen, upstanding citizens. That's how we have, even within this town, we have General James Morgan and Van Wickle established a pottery business. And we hear, even in our community, unless we tell the story that, yes, they were very good businessmen. However, it was often on human flesh. And we have to know that, that business is not the only responsibility of good citizens. The project has been an undertaking with many goals. What are you currently focused on and what do you hope to accomplish in the future? It's education for me of all of the many goals that we have, which of course include building a memorial, uniting the community within that process. But I think if I had to pick just one thing or a priority, it would be to have the community and particularly its young people recognize what true history means, what inclusive history means, and the fact that just because you didn't break it, it's your responsibility to help fix it when you see that there is a problem. And I think it has been instructive to see how a community of very different people, volunteers, have come together in a united cause from their different perspectives and decided together that a community is worth the truth. And that's one of the reasons I'm happy to be here with Peter today. When I became involved, my initial focus was get a physical memorial up there with names on it and details. And over time, it's shifted. I see the educational program as the key and the physical memorial as one of the tools in that program. But what has happened to me over the time since 2017, when I became involved, when the project started, it is surprising. Here I am at the age of 81, well-educated as people go in this country. And I have never before had close, continuous working relationships with Black people. I've worked with Black people 
having black students is not the same as working as a co-equal with people of very different background from mine. And so some, virtually all, of the black people with whom I've had to work, not to mention the white ones, they have become dear to me, friends, people with whom I would enjoy having dinner once this damn pandemic is over. <laughs> and it's odd and unfortunate that it should have taken me until I'm 81 for this to happen. And I can only hope that the inclusiveness we're trying to develop and foster can be spread. And it appears to be with the young people. That's why there's such a hope. They have jumped into working on the project, on their walk and learn, on their posters, and just their energy around having the right history, unerasing history, and being a part of some of the solutions. That is so gratifying. And I think that when people talk to each other, they will find similarities, or at least there's a possibility when they do. As Shylock said in The Merchant of Venice, if you tickle us, do we not laugh? And if you prick us, do we not bleed? I think a lot of what's happening now around the country, and Black History Month, I've seen celebrated in more ways than ever this year, whether it's in the media, whether it's speeches, events of various kinds, I think that some of the move towards seeing people as being worthy, equally worthy, different but worthy. And when we, when we come to that realization, then I think it behooves us to treat them differently and to remember those who were not treated as worthy. We have 137 souls who we know can document fully that they were taken inhumanely. And that's really one of the things that we feel strongly about in the memorial. It is, Van Wickle was here, he did whatever he did, but there were people here whose lives were totally disrupted and worsened by having been shipped away. And I think that when we focus on that, it's easy to feel that there should be some redress, that we should care about that. This is our town, and they walked these streets at one time. And some of them should still have people here who are their descendants. And that was not allowed to happen. One of the things that sticks in my mind all the time is that the thugs who marched in Charlottesville a year or two ago ostensibly were defending the culture of the Confederacy, defending Confederate monuments. But that's not at all what they were defending. They were defending white supremacy, the idea that white men should be entitled to rule over everything. Those thugs at night, when they marched with their ticking torches, chanted, Jews will not replace us. Jews will not replace us. And if they were to come to power, or people like them, it would only be a matter of time before they would come for people like me. Well, they've come already for people like me. And you too, and you too. And so I fear for my grandchildren and yours. One of our goals with this series, beyond sharing the story, was to encourage those who are so moved to become involved. What areas of volunteers are you currently looking for and who can participate? Anybody. 
everybody. Yes, the more people, the better. We have bandwidth problems because we are a small group. And as we now have just got our 501c3 status, we're going to be moving into judging candidates for the structure of the memorial. We're going to be moving into massive fundraising and all sorts of community events. We need people of all kinds, and they do not have to come from East Brunswick. They can come from anywhere that they wish. We meet as a group on the first Tuesday of the month at seven o'clock. It's easy enough to find us on the web. We have a website and you can find us there and get the details for participating on Tuesday as a start and then join up, help us, and you'll have fun as I am. And there is work to be done. We have people who have skills in media, communications, fundraising. So bring your skills. And if you feel that you'd like to bone up on your skills, there'll be people who can guide you through the process of serving. I, I can't imagine that anybody who is interested in this project wouldn't find lots of work to do to help us move it forward. We'll keep you off the streets and out of the bars. I don't know, Peter. Let's not promise too much. Well, that's if we don't drive you into them. <laughs> the website is lostsoulsmemorialnj.org, correct? That's correct. And a lot of additional information while you're deciding how to be a part of us. The website is very clear about even more of the history than Peter and I could tell you about today. It gives you um, the background and makes it clear and gives you uh, comfort in knowing that we have well-researched the, the work that we're putting out there. So we invite you, in any case, to view the website, share it with family and friends, and join up. A point to be made here is that for the 137 people that we've identified, there has been thorough research into records that were contemporaneous with the shipping of these folks south. We have a researcher and her staff who are absolutely superb. They have documented everything with contemporaneous records. So when we have the name of somebody who's one of the lost souls, we know we have it right. And it's really chilling when you see a name and an age of people who are on manifest lists. When you know that there were men who were able-bodied and adult, when you know that there were mothers with children as young as two days old, when you know also that not only were people shipped away through Sandy Hook and through the Perth Amboy ports, there was a kahal. Now that's a word I didn't even know until a few years ago, which included people who walked, who were chained together and who walked from New Jersey to at least Alabama and maybe beyond into Louisiana and Mississippi. I'm sure that they started out with the most strong and able people. And I don't know that we know how many people from the Kafal made it to their final 
destination for walking. So we both shipped and marched people uh, in line for this person who was, quote, a judge and a good businessman. And when people got down to work on plantations as slaves, their life expectancy was short. The areas were malarial, and so you inevitably got malaria, which could kill you over time. I've had malaria from when I lived in Africa. It is not fun. The food was insufficient to maintain health. The living conditions were execrable. So the life expectancy under hard labor with an overseer with a whip, if you didn't move fast enough, uh, was not high. Imagine a family here in New Jersey. A man leaves his house to go to work that day, slave or free, and doesn't come back. And there's an empty seat at the dinner table that night. And a hole in your heart forever. Mavonia and Peter, thank you for helping us reclaim the lost souls. Thank you, Melissa. It's an important reclamation process. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. In our previous episode, we highlighted some of the submissions in our teen essay contest, and we share the rest of them here. This teen essay was written by Diane Zissi and read by Karen Tong. Thinking back on history, there have been multiple times communities have been unified as a whole due to their circumstances. A great example of this is the Lost Souls Public Memorial Project. Not only does this project discuss a self-interested judge, it also speaks about the many free lives sold into slavery in New Jersey. This historical happening triggered the citizens of Middlesex County to stand together as one. On November 5, 1818, the citizens of Middlesex County positioned themselves to bring an end to this kidnapping. Individuals were to be fined or imprisoned if found to be associated with this unjust transportation system of free African Americans. Although laws were set in place, another group was sent into slavery just two days later. This truly shows how little they cared about the law and the lives of other fellow citizens. In later state history, there were other occurrences of racial oppression. Moreover, civilians in the state of New Jersey when legislative and executive forces have failed to protect minority groups. For instance, the 1923 Battle of Perth Amboy involved a crowd of 6,000 Perth Amboy residents rioting against the local Ku Klux Klan chapter. In the New York Times newspaper, it states, the townspeople stood their ground before the hall, in which about 150 Klansmen were still penned. This exhibits how they stood their ground and went against what was morally wrong. These events encouraged people to now stand up for what they believe. In recent events, many people have stood up against the political and societal oppressions to bring awareness to the injustices that racial minorities face, especially African Americans. As history correlates with future actions, activists seek to ensure history does not repeat itself. The Black Lives Matter movement combats racism by organizing civil protests. To conclude, society should learn from the mistakes of previous systems that resulted from internal biases and racist beliefs. Only with communities learning from the past will they be able to patch up the harm left by outdated oppressive structures. This teen essay was written by Ruby A. and read by Charitha Nanapanini. 1818, in which was the year where 137 African Americans were kidnapped into the Wan Wickle slavery, 
and sent from East Brunswick, New Jersey to permanent slavery in the Deep South. Racism has and forever been one of the most controversial topics, especially during the year 2020 with the hashtag Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter movement, not only in the United States, but around the world as well. Some of the two main effects of racism can cause trauma and social isolation. Racism has been a part of human history since the start of time. The effects of historical trauma are transmitted even as the structure that created them remains in place. Trauma is sadly a universal experience that happens in every community within every group. Youth especially experience racism directly according to the article Reaching Teens. It states, I'm multiracial, so I've received racism from a lot. Black people won't accept me because I have white people assets, and white people won't accept me because I look black. 19-year-old black young woman. Discrimination is a trauma itself. One that deeply hurts is knowing that people aren't getting treated the same just as because of their skin color. Many kids and teens notice a different treatment as they grow older. They experience a distinctly different realities because of the color of their skin. People, even yourself, at some point in life become prejudiced in which we look for what benefits us only. By social isolating, people create a safe environment in which they feel secure expressing themselves. Children and teens are especially vulnerable because their development and growth depends on social interaction and support that comes upon. Any minimal action done wrong may cause the teens and kids to isolate. This can definitely include racism. In the article Reaching Teens, it mentions that the environment that children grow up in depends whether or not they create a safe environment. One of the many tasks of adolescence is to establish critical aspects of identity. Forces can either create tension and deliver toxic levels of stress or build resilience and other strengths. Meaning that when youths grow, most of them are taught to express themselves wherever they are. On the other hand, some are not taught to have their beliefs, which then leads them to create a safe space for themselves in order to escape the capsule built inside of them. The researchers state in researching teens, when children and adolescents suffer from exposure to trauma or from a lack of the nurturant protective force of connected adults, it may affect their bodies, brains, and behaviors. Box 42.1 Trauma Has No Color This evidence states that adolescents suffer from lack of support coming from people around them. It has come to the attention of many that racism is poisoning our society. Our future generation should focus on accepting others whether it comes to ethnicity, gender, and decisions. Would you keep this generation the same or do you rather see a better future? <laughs>